It's the same old story. It's been a long day at the job, or maybe it's just starting to feel long, and you feel that urge to stretch your legs and get a little bit of a break. You walk down the street, or maybe you get behind the wheel of your car, and you feel the weight begin to lift. You walk through the doors, and the sound of the place starts to clear the air. You get a table, you order your drink, you listen to the sounds of the bar, and soak in the conversation. Welcome to the TNE Speakeasy with your hosts, Caleb and Eric. Listen in as they discuss the 1957 film Paths of Glory. But here we are, finally, returning to our Kubrick uh, retrospective. We took a little break there, but now we're returning with Paz of Glory, which I think this is one of the, uh, probably the one that gets the most attention of his early work. But for you and Paz of Glory, what's your uh, kind of relationship with this film? Is this one you've seen very much, or? You know, I didn't know it existed until, until I decided, you know, with purpose, oh, this Stanley Kubrick guy. I gotta look at all his stuff. Oh, okay. He has this little war movie I never heard of called Paths of Glory. Oh, okay. It's on the list. Oh, okay. It's a Criterion release. Got it. And yes, I saw it for my... I don't... mm, Who knows? It could have been... I don't remember when I got this, but it could have been 2014. I don't remember. Uh... Could have been before that. Could have been any later. But I got it and I watched it. And um, I didn't saturate myself in it. I didn't dive deep. Didn't marinate in the movie. I just kind of just watched it. And just took it for whatever. You know, just a quick takeaway. Um, which is really not the way to watch any Kubrick movie. <laughs> uh, uh, you, you should never just watch it once and just go with it because that's not the way it works with him usually um so i just remember just thinking oh yeah this this seems like it's really well done and this is an interesting story um i like it but of course it is most remembered um for the iconic walking through the trench scenes Mm. um like that's what it's really known for and that's what it that's how it sticks in my memory you know, mm-hmm. years after seeing it, that that's like the coolest part about it. And I can think of two movies, modern movies, that really recreated that sensation well of of the trenches, the the shots in the the scene and the shots in the trench. Um, Zack Snyder created it very well, recreated it very well um, during one of his segments in Sucker Punch. Oh. Um, have you seen if you've seen that movie and if you remember the the parts that take place in the trenches mm-hmm. very homage to this um just in the the, the camera movement and in shooting oh interesting hmm. also of course if you've seen 1917 have you seen that nope oh geez 
That's a movie to watch. That is a movie to watch if you never. And that was that was a movie that you really should have caught it at the theater. Um, mm-hmm. That that is very much meant to be seen at the movie theater. I don't consider that an overall great, great, like all-time great movie. Uh, but it is one of the better war movies in general. But it, it's oh. it reminds me of uh, Gravity, in a sense. Um, because that's also not one of the greatest movies ever. No. But it is one of the greatest cinematic experiences for the time when you're actually in the theater watching it. That's interesting. It's like a really fun ride. It's a really fun ride. Yeah, I definitely... I meant to catch that one. I just missed it. But I almost picked up the uh, UHD like maybe like two days ago. But I chose uh, Joker instead. <laughs> so I rewatched Joker. But, <laughs> but uh, for my, uh, my dynamic with this movie... So this is one of the later Kubrick films that I saw. I think I oh. saw this maybe... Did you have some more to say? No, no, you just reminded me because, yes, these early ones, those ones that we've just covered recently on the podcast, Mm -hmm. they were all like the last of the Kubricks I watched as well. Um, Okay, sure. Pretty much everything that we've covered, so like Fear and Desire, Killer's Kiss, this, all this stuff, this is like the last Kubrick things I saw just about. Well, Barry Lyndon was the very last, but I saw all these before Barry Lyndon. Yeah, back around maybe twenty, late 2018, I started a Kubrick retrospective. And so I started with Fear and Desire, and I made it up to this one. And I think I made it to uh, Dr. Strangelove again, and then I fell off. But see, I've, I think I've seen this one maybe only once before my most recent viewing. I didn't have a sticky note on my DVD like I usually do, because I've not been keeping good track the past couple of years. But... <laughs> Usually I keep track of how often I watch things, but but I'm pretty sure I did only watch this one once before, so coming to this very fresh. And I did remember having quite positive feelings on it, and returning to it, I still had positive feelings on it, but um, it, it's a little bit different than what I initially felt when I first watched it. There's some interesting wrinkles to it that I didn't quite see initially, but I guess we'll get into some of that. But I first want to uh, say, what do you think of Kirk Douglas? Is this an actor that you've seen much of besides his work with Kubrick? No, not really. Definitely more with his son. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and what's insane, because I wasn't sure until, you know, just before we were going to have this conversation today, I was trying to remember, like, when did he pass? He passed in 2020. Yep. That's completely insane. It is. Especially for someone who was born in 1916. Mm-hmm. And especially because I was watching a little bit of the supplements earlier. And there's a supplement when he was on a, a talk show in 1979. And for a man who lived to 103... He already looked extremely old in 1979. Mm. Like, he, he looked much older than his years in 1979. And it is just shocking. <laughs> it's shocking. Um, and I guess he was 41 when he did this movie. And mm-hmm. he looks old for 41, actually. Um, yep. 
It's very strange. Uh, it's very, very strange. It's the old ways. You'd sit in the sun all day, drink cigarettes, or drink and smoke cigarettes. And it's weird, though. As fit as he... As, as fit a specimen as he is, he still looks really aged. Uh, but no, I don't really know him. All right, I just... Always knew his reputation from Spartacus, even though I had never seen Spartacus. Uh, oh. And I always knew he was Michael Douglas's father. And but no, I never actually have seen a lot of his movies. Yeah, I I've only seen. It's funny, all these movies. I've only I only really know him from three other movies, and they were all ones that my parents owned on either VHS or DVD. And that was uh, the Vikings. Um, Fury, that Brian De Palma movie, and then Spartacus. Those are the only things that I've seen outside of this with Kirk Douglas. But I did read his book on the making of Spartacus, so I'll probably talk about that uh, when we get to that film. Sure. But lots of very curious uh, details in that, in his opinion on Stanley Kubrick. Which, during making making of this movie, he actually had very high opinions of him. He was very impressed by this guy who he thought was kind of obscure came out of working in extremely low budget arena and he thought that he really brought a lot of class to this movie and i definitely agree i think right away like when we see um that general kind of going through the trenches just this really moving camera immediately i feel like just his uh aesthetic style has stepped up from his past well, movies yes it, if you were going through the kubrick catalog as we are in chronological order. I would say this is the first one where you definitively can tell this is Kubrick. Mm. Uh, we mm -hmm. definitely got plenty of, I mean, the killing is fantastic. Yep. And you get that that's, that's proto-Kubrick. Um, but this is Kubrick through, and like this is when you know the man has arrived. And that's this movie. Yeah, and it's curious because uh, the way that he directs actors for the rest of his movies begins here too, where there's um, a strange removedness from naturalism. Yes, like it's especially with the villain characters, very cartoonishly played, which is interesting because uh, in so many ways this movie has a very kind of raw feel to it. But when it comes to all like the general class, they feel so cartoony. It's an interesting contrast. I definitely think it works, but it's unusual. I did not remember that from my uh, initial viewing. There's plenty more I got uh, on this fresh viewing that I definitely didn't get the first time. Um, frankly, even to this moment, I have not given this movie full justice yet because there's actually a lot more going on here than the overall surface story or plot. So, for those out there who haven't seen it, have no idea, it's World War One. These are actually French uh, soldiers. Um, mm -hmm. It has this odd thing where it's kind of like Star Wars in a way. Uh, all the, uh, from, um, was he Captain? From Captain Dax down in rank, everyone mostly seems like an American. <laughs> and then everyone who's got a higher rank than Dax has like a British accent yet yeah. like almost no one is French though but <clears throat> that doesn't matter um kind of reminds me of watching Valkyrie with Tom Cruise but anyway um so it's it's World War One trench warfare 
Um, the front line's been stuck where it's been for a while. Um, the wacky general is like, we need you guys to be the first. Your your battalion or your your group needs to needs to get over, get out of the trenches first. Go it out there and you know gain some ground on the enemy. But it's a suicide mission, and Kirk Douglas kind of knows that. But it's like, hey, just do this. You could possibly get promoted later. You know, just do it. Just do what you got. You know, just go with it. And so they do, and it's a disaster, and tons of men get killed. Some things go wrong. Um, so then, to save face, the French uh, officers or the higher ups. They need to basically put on a show trial to um, have some fall guys or scapegoats uh, to take the blame for the the military failure, um, and that's kind of that's kind of what this movie is all about. So that's the 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 plot line, but there's a lot more going on if you dig below the surface with some of these characters and interactions and the different levels of characters because we do have the brass, the high upper brass the generals etc but then we also have some characters who are uh, below decks as they say um, that have some relevance to the story how interesting are you talking about uh like what was that um roger was that it? <laughs> lieutenant roger yeah 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 and he's so familiar he, the actor oh i know i think i kept trying to place but i think he it's the actor, yes, but he also reminds me of some actor slash character from TNG. I can't put my finger on it. Mm. Oh, oh my gosh. Yeah, I was trying to look up this guy to see because I was like, this guy feels so familiar. But maybe he was just kind of a type that they used to cast a lot. These kind of bigger, burlier looking guys with kind of a deep kind of... Voice I mean, both him. could be true because he could be just like you say, like a archetype. But I mentioned this during the killing. If if you and I were the movie watchers, who we are, except back in the fifties, <laughs> then we would recognize all these faces as character actors. Um, because, like with kill the killing, that's how Kubrick was with this movie. Because Kubrick was a avid movie watcher, movie goer. And like Tarantino, he just kind of handpicked certain people because he just knew, like, oh, I like this character actor, I like this character actor, and then, like, plugged them into the movie. So these would have been known faces by movie lovers back in the day. Um, we just don't know, uh, being so far removed in time. Yeah, and trying to look them up, I hadn't seen a lot of what most of them did, but they did feel very familiar. That's why I thought maybe it was, like, a, like a type thing. No, but... That guy in particular, though, he comes across as extremely familiar. Like, like maybe he was an episode of classic Twilight Zone or something. Like, I don't know. I'm trying to look him up myself right now. But... And that that's an aspect of the plot that I really love. And I love the way it plays later. Because we have this kind of middle management type guy, this lieutenant. And he's got these two underlings that they have to go off on a little uh, scouting mission the day before their big raid or big assault. Yes. And he's kind of a drunk, he's kind of a fuck-up, and he ends up killing one of the other guys, and then just taking off on his own and abandoning his other troop. And so they have this kind of secret, but 
heated dynamic between them. I think that plays super cool. And it's played very well too. Not one of the uh, cartoonish performances. Like the upper kind of brass. Yes. But it's got much more kind of a realist feel to it. But it was pointed out in some of the special features, so I can't take credit. Um, but the whole opening gambit that you're speaking of, um, and all the and this mistake and this, um, oh, what's his name again? Uh, the character uh, Rousseau or something? Roger. Roger. This whole opening gambit can be looked upon as a microcosm for the whole movie. Absolutely. That's what's so great about it. I love that. Exactly. <laughs> and I didn't pick up on that on first viewing because I wasn't paying full attention. But the the whole thing, yeah, it's a microcosm and it sets up the whole what's going to go on in the movie and the interactions that Kirk Douglas is going to have with the big general and the, who's going to take blame and, well, hey, you know, don't worry about it and, if we just, you know, no reason to worry about the uh, the mistake or the collateral damage, and we can just brush that aside and overlook it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. It didn't occur to me until uh, his his last scene with uh, Kirk Douglas. That's when it clicked, and I was like, "Oh, that that's so perfect!" Like it, it's such a great little kind of illustration. And so much of this is kind of the the danger of you know getting up to those kind of promoted elements when you're removed from everything and so yeah just he's he's just at the tip of that moving up the ranks but he's already kind of that the perfect kind of guy for it that's what's that's what's frightening but but i also think just the scene of them going out for their little scouting was just shot so fantastically like the black and white and whatever little tiny little set that they must have built for their little uh, trenches because it really doesn't seem like it was that big but it just feels really expansive to it and it's got a great kind of haunting look to it i think all that stuff really shines early on in that uh, scouting scene yeah it's interesting because some of the opening shots that set the scene for the trenches like some of it looks like little models a la yeah. classic doctor who but then you can tell during some of the iconic trench walking scenes that if you pay attention to the far background um, out of out of shot out of frame I think you can see that they're in the middle of a quarry that's what I figured yeah yeah and you can see the quarry walls at certain times if you really if you're really looking for them which is also <laughs> quite interesting I think but it's all really well done it's really mm-hmm. well done um and there's something else about this movie because and we'll continue to talk about it's it's really greater than some of its parts um but uh you know we were talking about this movie being like the first one chronologically where it's like kubrick has arrived as the auteur filmmaker that we know him to be that being said we obviously discussed fear and desire and how far removed that was um from the kubrick that we know but yet I weirdly see a lot of connections, or I feel connections between this and Fear and Desire. Mm-hmm. And as far as I can tell, the only big difference is, aside from the quality of the actors, the only big difference is one is based upon what was a well-known novel, 
So it had an underpinning, you know, that, that was already established. Whereas the other one didn't. But other than that, they both seem relatively low budget. They both seem to deal with, you know, just soldiers struggling with the psychology of war and the craziness and, and the ridiculousness and and the just like the human aspect. Um, and so they're actually, and, and they just have a similar feel, even though one is more amateurish and, and the other isn't. There's just something about it. I, I can't quite put my finger on it, but it they share some DNA in some kind of way. For me. Yeah, and I, I was definitely feeling that too. And of, of course, Kubrick would later revisit kind of war elements, I guess multiple times over. So it's clearly something that was burning in him to kind of explore. So maybe he was bringing some of the uh, same DNA that was in that original one. But of course, this is much more of a straightforward kind of plot. That one was lost in some sort of weird surrealism that <laughs> didn't really work. This one, he kind of masks his allegory with just a cool kind of war piece and then also like a kind of courtroom drama which which just by the way I, I love courtroom dramas i really think that stuff can be super exhilarating on screen and i think some of the stuff with kirk douglas making his speeches later really is um, some really moving stuff so i really enjoy both halves of the movie even though they do feel quite uh, distinctly different but I was going to ask, what was your more, because the first half is definitely more tense and more atmospheric. Did you prefer that kind of stuff and then kind of get maybe less into it once we got to the more kind of courtroom stuff? Even though they're not actually going to a courtroom, but... No, no, I was, uh, I was actually quite fine with the change, the transition to the courtroom. So, like, it didn't really bother me at all. Like, it just made natural sense. I know... <laughs> I know you're not the biggest fan, or I think you're not the biggest fan of um, the old Moffat two-parter, where both parts feel so disparate from each other. No, definitely not. <laughs> but I always liked, as long as we were continuing the story and continuing the theme, it never bothered me at all. I actually kind of liked when Moffat would do that, generally speaking. And my same feelings apply to this. Like, I was perfectly fine with it, like moving on to the next the next part and and of course this uh, this is something that Kubrick wouldn't be known for again like with you know full metal jacket etc but uh, no it works for me I like it I like it mm. yeah because I did wonder about that because maybe I mean I haven't seen the ads for this but I have a feeling that they would have focused on kind of the uh, that kind of assault scene and so I can imagine audiences coming to see this and being like oh like this isn't what I was uh signing well, up for but i'll tell you what's weird i learned in the in the uh um the features so you know they were concerned that there wasn't really much to draw in ladies to see this movie so you know there's a scene where there's kind of like a formal dinner party or whatever <laughs> so the studio put it out to the magazines we would like you all to write articles focusing on the exquisite dresses during the uh, dinner <laughs> scenes. They want, they were trying to get magazines to write articles on that to bring in the female audience. So I just thought that was interesting. 
Wow, that's that is completely ridiculous. But <laughs> <laughs> makes sense though, right? <laughs> I did actually think that was uh, a really interesting moment when we see that kind of this general class all just hanging out their little parties with these chicks that I'm sure they just like flew in that have no interest in these like dinosaurs. <laughs> mm -hmm. Very interesting contrast to these poor men just yeah dying in the trenches. Yeah, I was curious. Well, it's funny because I mentioned War and Peace earlier. Um, and of course, that's a lot of what that's all about. The, mm. the book and the movie. That's what it's all about. It's about the aristocrats who are fighting the war from a distance. But it's easy for them to just send troops in um, when they're not actually out there dying and sweating and freezing and starving. And it's easy... That's what that's all about, that movie, and the aristocrats making all these big-level decisions uh, in comfortable rooms and having dinner parties while the guys are out there on the front lines. So this movie is also like a microcosm of that. Yeah, I think there's that really great scene early on when the uh, general's doing his little trench run, going up to the men like, oh, are you happy to kill Germans? And then he goes to Kirk Douglas and starts explaining how he wants to take the anthill and just breaks down all the death just in kind of percentages and you see as he starts listing more and more just kirk douglas just starts to you know kind of inside he's he's breaking his heart's breaking for the men that he knows are going to die but he's keeping it kind of closed up and i think that's another really great moment of just showing the complete detachment by these these fuckers up there in their little their little ivory towers just no care whatsoever about these men very uh ugly portrayal but it, it works. It really, even though they are so cartoonish, and of course the general's got this huge scar, like he feels like uh, very much like a black coat kind of villain. Like there's no sort of nuanced shading to him necessarily. But I, I still think the <laughs> it works as kind of the the middle piece kind of villain, and then we get that other bigger general. Um, who is the other guy? Do you remember oh his my name? Gosh. Um... There's Major General Georges Brolard. There's Brigadier General Paul Miru. Oh, that's... Yeah, the Brolard one was the one I was meaning. It was kind of the real... Kind of when you really step back and look at it. Like, yeah, the, the other... Um, I think it was... Oh, well, I, I'm struggling to remember these names because they're all these French names. <laughs> I think uh, Miru was the, uh, the scarred one. He's kind of like a peacock. He's not really... Like, he's close to getting up to the top echelon level, but he's not quite there yet. And he's, yeah, he's strutting around, thinking he's so great. He's always dressing himself up in the flag, and, oh, I'm this amazing soldier, this patriot. And then you get to the other general who's above him, who is much less played down and plays himself more as, like, the sympathetic ear and wants to really play himself off as a good guy, but he's just as villainous. He just hides it a lot better. Yes. I think that dynamic helps kind of work with the uh, cartoonish shading yeah. of the main general. And you keep talking about them, you know, being cartoonish at the top in this movie. And again, this is a little bit of a proto Strangelove as well. Um, yes, mm, absolutely. Very much planting the seeds. But again, that's... And a lot of people like to say that Kubrick's movies... Um, well, I've heard this line repeated in many sources that Kubrick's war movies were anti-war movies, but but 
No, people like to call them not anti-war movies, but um, absurdity of war movies. Yes, absolutely. Which I guess there's a there's a distinction there. Yeah, because I I feel like he I don't get I get the sense that Kubrick realizes that war is just an inherent part of humanity. They're never going to stop. So instead of making some sort of statement to be like, oh, you know, this is what we shouldn't do, it's more just laughing in your face and kind of spitting in your face but like this is what these this is what this really looks like when you break it down all these we see the real scenes of war the men dying in the trenches that's a hideous kind of um sequence of brutality and then you look at the upper class and yeah there's just this cartoon they paint themselves up as oh we're we're the real soldiers in the trenches we're the ones really fighting the war and there they are just drinking their cognac and just watching from a distance but works is yeah, kind of the absurdity of war, and then he, of course, he takes that to the absolute extreme in uh, Doctor Strange stuff. Yes, <laughs> which I cannot wait till we get to that. That's again my all-time favorite movie. I could watch that ten times in a year and not get bored of it. Absolutely love that movie. <laughs> that's that's so weird and interesting. Your all-time favorite movie. Yep. <laughs> oh, but now that I'm actually uh, getting to the scene when we go through the trenches. When uh, Kirk Douglas is looking at all the men all lined up getting ready for war. Yeah, this this scene when I was watching it a couple days ago was super tense. Just seeing them all looking to him and he's checking his time. And this stuff is just some fantastic filmmaking by, by Kubrick. It's really got a great rawness to it. It has kind of a documentary feel. Like it could have felt like this a piece of uh, Vietnam. I, I, I knew you were about to say that. <laughs> I knew you were about to say that. <laughs> yeah and by the way um because i actually don't own the criterion disc of this i just have some shitty region 2 uh disc but were there many good special features like i'd be curious to see kind of like if they talked to kirk douglas or i didn't get through them all i didn't get through them all um the kirk douglas one it's it's just a full-on interview with him so they don't necessarily talk about paths of glory in particular it's it's just Kirk Douglas, being Kirk Douglas on a talk show. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that. I I love oh, Criterion. Okay. They have that type of ar- archival type stuff. There was a short two minute phone interview with Stanley Kubrick from taken at the time. Oh I guess, wow! I guess Kubrick met his wife uh, while making this movie. Wow. Uh, or maybe it's his next wife because <laughs> I think he already had a wife. But anyway. Um, <laughs> But uh, but I didn't get to get through everything uh, in the special features. Yeah, I'm just curious because uh, mentioning Paths of Glory in the book that I read, I Am Spartacus, it was like a very brief footnote. Most of the book was about him breaking the Hollywood bla- blacklist and the production of Spartacus. But he's so good in this movie. Like He really has some super riveting scenes later on in the movie. So I'd just be curious to know what his thoughts were kind of uh, going Kirk into Douglas? kind of... I mean, I'm assuming... Yeah, Kirk Douglas. I'm assuming, because knowing his opinions on the Hollywood Blacklist, that he's probably a big big leftist, so he's probably pretty happy with the anti-war message of the movie. Oh, but... <laughs> yeah, there was nothing specific to that. I just know that off of the killing, of the reputation of it, Kirk Douglas wanted to work with Kubrick, you know? And he really put up most of the money and he really financed oh, wow. it himself. It was more of an independent production 
meaning you put most of your money on the line rather than a studio's money and just hope that you know you break even oh i didn't realize so it's very much yes yes um and uh i apparently it was something standard in um kirk douglas's contracts uh he has to have a scene with his shirt off, and that's how we first see him at the very beginning. <laughs> really? No, I'm serious. That's not a joke. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, like, was he a sex symbol back in the day? I mean, I don't know anything about his career. Really, I so. think so. I think so. Um, so, yeah, we have him with his shirt off right in the very opening of the movie. Uh, something else I learned that was interesting. So one of the three guys who gets put on trial later... Um, oh yeah, the one who talks a lot. You know who I'm talking about? Like the like this the Ar- Arnold, I think it is. Like the professor, they think they call him at one point. Uh, the one who's a little bit crazy. He's like super smart. He's a little bit crazy. Oh, the guy from the Killing. I can't remember his yes, name. Yes, I was gonna say yes. I did not realize it until it was pointed out to me that yes, he is that same guy from the Killing. Um. Yeah. <laughs> apparently. A lot of his mumblings and lines are all ad-libs, or largely ad-libs. Makes sense. A lot of his scenes were supposed to him were supposed to be him just being quiet, <laughs> and he was just frequently ad-libbing, like in the moment, in the scene. And apparently, Kubrick was mostly okay with it, and <laughs> it didn't seem to bother him that much. Um, but apparently as they got towards the end of the movie and especially when he's interacting with the priest at the end, you know, leading up to mm-hmm. the execution, cause he's, he's doing a lot. Oh yes. Apparently the actor who played the priest, go back and watch it. Oh, he's pissed. Because that guy, yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't know what this guy's doing and he's just like playing along with it. Doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> and then supposedly... During those, when they were shooting those last scenes, and he's doing all this ad libbing, um, uh, supposedly, you know, Kubrick like pulled him aside. I was like, you know, I'm cool with this, but Mr. Douglas <laughs> has been watching you, and he is not amused. Like, he's kind of pissed. <laughs> and and I don't know if it was Kubrick who supposedly said this, but somebody said they're pissed because. You're starting to steal the show right now. And, oh wow! Hmm. <laughs> and and supposedly he got like fired like on the last day of production. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you remember doing the killing, but I mentioned I was like, I don't know what Kubrick saw in this guy. This guy's got a weird energy to him. I can't say if his performance is good or bad. And I was like, I think he gives an even weirder performance than Pants of Glory and. <laughs> It's super strange. He has his moments where he does look quite good, but other moments I'm like, what? Why is... <laughs> but all his babbling and oh god and oh... Supposedly that was all on the fly. <laughs> and not in the script. That's interesting. Well, yeah, Kubrick has a weird... Throughout his whole career has a weird relationship with actors. And I guess he just sees things in people that maybe I don't see, but... <laughs> Yeah, that guy was a weird addition to this movie. <laughs> but I do like some of his scenes, I will say. He's got such a weird like energy to him, like he feels completely different than everyone else in the movie. And so that's that has its its place, you know. 
as the military is made up of a collection of very different people from very different places in life, so, you know. <laughs> oh, and then the other, one of the other of the trio, um, he plays a private. Uh, did you recognize him from his other movie roles? Uh, which, uh, which one? Because I know that there's one that worked with Kubrick, I think, once or twice more. He was the one, yes, he did work with Kubrick again. He was the one who was incapacitated during the, uh, during the execution. Yeah. Yeah, I know he shows up in The Shining. I feel like maybe he shows up in, oh, what was the other one? I feel like he shows up in one more of them, but I can't remember. Maybe it's Eyes Wide Shut? I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not this sure. This is coming from many years ago of research, but <laughs> never I watched this. I'm not sure about his second appearance, if he has one in Kubrick Land, but... He's absolutely the bartender in The Shining, which I didn't realize. Yeah, that guy. And then I recognized him for another movie, and I was like, wait a second, is he also... He's, um... Oh, crap, what's his name in the movie? In, uh... He's in the original Blade Runner. Oh, maybe that's... Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Maybe he doesn't work with Kubrick again, but yeah, definitely Blade Runner. Yeah, yeah, he's the one who, you know, runs that corporation. He's like the, he's like the Steve Jobs of Blade Runner. Uh, the guy who uh, yeah, he's great in that. Yeah, I just and he's good in this too. Oh shit! I was like, oh shit, it's the same guy. Yeah, I think his introduction in the movie is a little clumsy. <laughs> like we just suddenly cut to the the barracks, and he's like kind of rambling on to this poor guy who just wants to go to sleep, and he's like, oh, like, what do you think would be the worst way to die? And he's just going on and about death, and the guy's like, fuck, man, we're going to like a big assault tomorrow. I really don't want to think about this. <laughs> so it's kind of an interesting introduction to him, but I think he has some some powerful moments uh, later in the movie as does uh my favorite of those three um oh fuck i can never remember any of these names they're too uh too french i don't recognize any of these these names but let me quickly look in the uh oh but also the the first guy we were talking about the the, the one who's off um also famously francis ford coppola really wanted to cast him in Godfather 1 and Godfather 2, and he turned down the roles for that that movie. Um, He wanted him to be... uh, He wanted him to play Luca Brazzi in the original Godfather. Oh, Um, thank God he did not. (laughs) Oh, what? (laughs) I want to see that, now that I know who he is. Uh, But he he instead... uh, He he instead... um, He turned it down so he could star in this television pilot for a show that never came to be um oh and then what's this uh i mean i just gotta mention with this guy the weird eye movements that he does throughout the movie and kubrick again seems to have loved the energy sometimes he'll like zoom right on his face as he does like these weird like (laughs) i don't know what but (laughs) just strange expressions to the screen He's like rolling his eyes and saying these kind of like slurring his lines kind of thing. Very odd. I just don't get the appeal that Kubrick's oh, on him. And, and he auditioned for the row of Joe Cabot for Reservoir Dogs with Steven, uh, with Steven, with Quentin Tarantino, um, but didn't oh, get wow. the part, obviously. Mm-hmm. But the screenplay was dedicated to him, uh, the Reservoir Dogs screenplay. And <laughs> fun fact. There's a photo of his, a portrait of him. Of, I mean, his face. He's on the, he's on the um, album cover for Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. His face is right behind George Harrison's face on the album cover. 
Oh, it is. It's a oh, shot wow. from. It's a shot from the movie Paths of Glory. Um, is oh, that's interesting. That's very interesting. Hmm. So look for that on your Sgt. Pepper's uh, album cover. <laughs> it's so weird. Hey, I guess you know being being that kind of weird energy on screen, I guess, does attract attention. So, so there you go. That's it's positive <laughs> for him. <laughs> Even if I don't fully get it, I I think he's just. It's crazy. <laughs> and I almost feel like, because again, there's this cartoonish element with the upper class and then the lower class feel more like real people. He, I don't, I don't know. I mean, in some ways he feels like, like a weirdo real person. Like, you know, you might meet him on the street and be like, oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> Just start randomly talking to you when you're in line or something like that. But, but he's so, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that guy even still. <laughs> he's cool. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. He, he also feels more like a movie character. Like he feels like someone playing a role more than a real person, like the other two do. Especially the one who has the uh, the problem with um, Roger, or how do you how do you say that name? Mm-hmm. The uh, the lieutenant who accidentally kills uh, the other guy. I think that guy is a lot of like. There's that moment near the end when he's when they finally realize that oh yeah we're gonna be, you know basically we're gonna be killed. And they're coming in to kind of say their last goodbyes, and he breaks down. I think that's a very powerful moment for him. I think he delivers it very well, performance-wise. Not super hammy like the other guy. <laughs> I don't want to knock him too much, but... <laughs> and even um, when he has the scene when um, Kirk Douglas comes in and kind of breaks down to them, Hey, you know, you guys are being tried for cowardice. They, Even though they picked you at a ra- at random... And he's like, I didn't get picked at random. I got picked because I witnessed this guy, you know, being terrible at his job. And he killed one of the other guys and was drunk on the job. Kirk Douglas has to just be like, I'm sorry, but that's not why it's not why you're on trial here. And it has no relevance at all. I think the way he delivered that scene was really great, too. And Kirk Douglas in that scene, too. Kind of showing the absurdity, like even if you have a real case that maybe should be uh, looked at, that's not that has no relevance at all. and No bearing. Can't even bring it up. <laughs> Very sad, that whole trial. Very unfortunate. Uh, and I guess this was based off a, a true story. I did see that, but I don't know anything about the, the true story. So, Yeah, I don't either, unfortunately. But partly because I'm being reminded by what I see on screen. Some other influences, perhaps? Or things... Influences slash... It's funny that we just watched this um, now. You know, not too long ago... You and I watched um, Twice Upon a Time, the the last Capaldi Doctor Who episode, and uh, when I first saw the trench scenes here, I was like, "Oh, it just took me back to Twice Upon a Time." Uh, of course, it looks just <laughs> like it. Of course, it does um, for those scenes. But something, something that I think perhaps was um, indirectly influenced, or indirectly slash directly, well. Um, the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles TV series. <laughs> I never got to w- watch a lot of it, but I did watch the first three or so episodes that aired on television back when that show came out. And I really, really was into the storyline. I don't know if you've have you seen any of that series ever before? I have, yeah. But probably only about the same as you, like maybe like 10 or so episodes. So I was very into the opening episodes of the 
teenage indies storyline. Um, mm-hmm. Well, after he okay, he, the first episode actually he's with like going against Pancho Villa, but then after that he goes across um, to Europe to fight in World War One, and he joins the French army, and he has like a. Uh, his best friend is this French soldier, and, and oh, yeah. <laughs> I always thought that was cool and interesting, and a glimpse into like the French army during World War One. So I was thinking about that while watching this. But then, uh, there okay, so the trial, if you will, takes place in this this very posh region, man, like some amazing i don't know what this place this location is but i'm just watching the movie and there's this shot where some guys are talking to the general i don't even remember where it takes place i mean exactly when in the movie it takes place but some guys are having a conversation with um probably kirk douglas is talking to the other generals or something and they're like coming down they go around a staircase oh yeah and it's almost identical to a shot in the phantom menace when the um on the boo and, and the Neomoidians or whatever or they're talking to somebody and they're and they go around a staircase and it, it looks like it's almost exactly framed exactly the same and then when they just come into like the main hall where they're gonna have the trial it just feels like Nobu and it just feels like that same building and and when the troops are marching in the hall in this movie it just feels like it's the the um the uh the droid troopers like walking down the hall it, it i swear this is like george lucas saw this stuff in his head um just the way the chairs are just set up in the big open space this is this is naboo this is totally naboo i would have never thought of it but i can i can <laughs> see the the resemblance yeah <laughs> but yeah i guess we should talk about that little trial scene cuz that is really yeah, the moment of like true hideousness of the uh, kind of machine of the military might, because yeah, the, they've already decided. I mean, like they don't even really want to go through the trial. Like, ah, we might as well just you know say a few words and commence with the executions. And poor Kirk Douglas is trying to uh, do what he can to stand up for his men, but they're just not having any of it. And we, I love how the uh, <laughs> the real general is sat on this like very fancy looking couch and he's all like looking super luxurious like he's just enjoying all of this very uh grotesque kind of image i wish that he kind of added like a glass of wine or something too i think that would have added to it to make it look more uh comedic i was gonna say like in my mind's eye if i'm just a listener to the podcast i'm picturing jabba the hut sitting over there uh, watching he's got like a cigarette and one of those little uh little sticks you know mm-hmm. some black gloves <laughs> But he really is like he's rubbing his hands. He's like looking on with like a little grin. Yeah, it's very uh, cartoonishly played. And his little smug like lackey, the whoever the uh, what's the what's the other side called in a trial? <laughs> I'm a little drunk right now. Uh, uh, it's the prosecution. There's defense. Prosecutor. Yeah. Who uh, never even wants to really ask him a question. He just wants to lead the uh, the judges or whatever. It's very uh, <laughs> it's very unfortunate portrayal. And again, I know this is based on a true story, but I don't know anything about the real proceedings, but if they really were this much of like a kangaroo court, that's just uh, pretty gross. Look at the uh, French army back then. But I don't know too much about it. I'm sure 
Um, figuratively, it's accurate, but not literally. Yeah, and it's making me think of uh, what was that? Who directed that movie? Now, The Trial. Was it um, Fritz Lang who directed that? Did you ever see that? I did not. Either way, whoever directed The Trial, yeah, that's another one where you watch those kind of scenes, and it's super disturbing to see the. And nothing's really based on the real events. It's just based on what people perceive, and you're just kind of. You're almost like stuck in like a like a tide just being pulled in their direction very disturbing kind of a place to be in and i think that actually works as another piece of suspense to kind of mirror the uh, earlier pieces of like the trench fight it's a very different kind of battle but you're still just up against another kind of um uh, so this is from uh wikipedia a pass of glory is based loosely on the true story of the Suyane Corporal's Affair when four French soldiers were executed in 1915 during World War I under General Gerard Revillach for failure to follow orders. The soldiers were exonerated posthumously in 1934. The novel is about the French execution of innocent men to strengthen others' resolve to fight. Hmm. The French army did carry out military executions for cowardice as did most countries still in those days. Um, it, but it was definitely still a, a normal practice at that time. Uh, execution for cowardice. Yikes. <laughs> and again, I mean, we're talking about at least for uh, the weirder one. I, I wish I could remember the name. I think it's Feral for the one guy. Uh, the weirder um, guy. <laughs> I'll have it in a moment. Like he said that he, yeah, he went out to the battle. He got halfway through. And they turned around because it was only him and one other guy, and they were like, we can't take this on our own, and there's no one else around us, everyone's dead, so let's just retreat. And yet they don't even take that into account. They're like, oh, he retreated, so good enough for us. Execute him. Yep. Yeah, like I said again, being like stuck in like a tide, being just pulled. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's, it's interesting, because the initial battle, like, like, they knew all along, like, there's no chance that we're going to win this. This is simply just for this one general's promotion for his ego another kind of notch in his belt and so in that way the men were just these victims being pulled along behind him in this trial too it's the same thing so mirror just done kind of uh in a different setting so i think that's another cool bit yes and i still oh go ahead <laughs> oh no he was private feral maurice feral and i wish i could remember the name of the other one that i that i quite like um the one who went on the uh the scouting mission with Roger at the beginning. I think it's Roger. Uh, <laughs> it was either Arnaud, uh, that was the one in The Shining, and the other one, was it Bullinger? Bullinger? Uh, may, maybe, I'm not I'm not sure. But either way, I just like the, the dynamic where, because even though we have this, in a way, a facade of military order where everyone's kind of acting to their better self, they're all just part of this machine, they're not meant to have so much individuality i like that those two had like a prior history and that's kind of what started their issue mm-hmm. and then and then when you see makes his big screw up he's still it's like oh crap i made it in front of this guy who already doesn't respect me so once he has the opportunity to get him out of the way he takes it in. and i do like at the end when he has to be the one to execute them he now that he's kind of faced with it, he's kind of like oh fuck you know like i'm an asshole i'm sorry that i did this but but just this kind of gross element of the the people with power just abusing people under them. 
I think that's a good way to execute it there with that that pairing. There's that, and it's also it's what it comes up in a lot of industry. Uh, well, it comes up in war, but it comes up in business. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's a very dog eat dog. Like you have to. It's it's all Machiavellian, really. Is a lot of what we're seeing here, and and self preservation, politically and literally. Yeah, and in some ways, I feel like this. Yeah, this is more allegorical about just power in general, rather than just the bounds of like the military. Because mm-hmm. again, I don't know anything about the military at this point in history. I really don't know what the structure was like in Paris or, or in France and anywhere else. So, <laughs> but in terms of just the general world of. Yeah, just people with so much power abusing the people under them. I think it's really uh, powerful still. Well, it's a combination of that, but then you have to imagine, you know, it's World War One, desperate times. Uh, and, you know, they say desperate times cause for des- desperate measures. And um, well, and the ends justify the means, you know. It's all that kind of stuff, too. Yeah, and again, maybe it's not completely accurate, but a lot of the portrayals of, that, of the First World War now is very much like just basically these rich pompous fucks playing around people's lives basically just to draw lines on a map it wasn't really about protecting their own sovereignty or protecting themselves against like a bigger villain it was just rich people playing around with lives just for i can't remember exactly how this film historian explained it on the disc but according to him i can't i won't accurately paraphrase this but he he said that World War One movies pre World War Two they all had like a heroic quality or sense about them, but that post World War Two that World War One movies were more questioning of the war and more along the lines of this movie, like where mm. it was like a more questionable, unjust not really heroic types but it was something that came with the times of the experience of world war ii shaped how movie makers treated world war one yeah and i feel like you hear a lot about world war one where it was yeah basically this war of just just like shredding bodies where they didn't really care about the body counts and they were just like oh yeah just keep pressing forward who cares all these dead people that's fine so i mean maybe that's just a perception i get from media made after the fact where people are much more critical i don't know how real that is based on the actual events but that's just the sense i get from the media i've consumed about it well but in my notes i also had uh what were your thoughts on that final sequence after the men have been executed and then uh kirk douglas goes and he sees his men being entertained by that german singer i thought that was quite a powerful sequence on this viewing Uh, uh Kubrick's wife. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, that's interesting. I think she's the one. Uh, yeah. I think she's the one who he met making the movie. Um, and then married. Um, and she was German. Uh, <laughs> oh. Yeah. But uh, no, I don't know. I I don't know. I, I thought you were going to ask what did I think about the posturing of the general's post-execution um oh oh yeah i was just going off my notes but yeah if you want to talk about that go ahead no because i mean because i'm not sure i have to go back and think about that i don't I'm not, I'm not sure what i think about that scene uh the one you spoke of but i did like the uh 
the fact that the general doesn't get away with it after all. And it's weird how still Kirk Douglas Dax still benefits from this whole charade, ultimately. Um, yeah, that's kind of the sad part. Even though, <laughs> even though his men pay the price. And I'm not sure how much he benefits. It doesn't seem like he's willing to take a promotion. He just wants to go right out to the front lines again. But, yeah, that that's when you really see that that other general is really much more kind of, like you said, Machiavellian than maybe we realized. Because it seems like just a kindly old grandpa, like, oh, yeah, you know, I want to shepherd things along. He seems kind of <laughs> to find the other general, uh, Bro Brolard or whatever. He seems to find a little bit of distaste in him, even from the early scenes. Like, he's like, oh, you know, what are you a minor here now? And you seem a little too presumptuous and... Like I said, yeah. the guy almost seems like a peacock. Everything feels like an act with him. This kind of old grandpa, during that Kirk Douglas scene, he kind of reveals himself as thinking in the same way, just pre presenting himself differently. Yes. And, you know, this would be a good companion piece. Um, coincidentally, I don't know, have you ever heard of this kind of famous book, The uh, 48 Laws of Power? No, uh, never heard of by, it. By Green. I can't remember his first name. It's a very, very well-known book. Big-time bestseller. Came out around the year 2000, maybe? I'm not sure about that. But um, it's it's this, it's this a very interesting book. It's got a lot of historical um, anecdotes in it. Um, it's infamously banned in, in prisons. Because um, uh, it's, it's like one of the number one sought-after books by like inmates and things like that. Um, oh boy! But it's a good read. It's a good, entertaining read, and it's it's kind of on the theme of Machiavelli, like how to attain power, how to maintain power, how not to lose power, and it gives a whole assortment of historical anecdotes to back up these forty-eight laws that the author has narrowed things down to. It's it's a great read because you can just read like a chapter a night or whatever. Um, and if you read that book, this movie is a good companion piece to that book because, mm. because all this stuff we've talked about, all the different posturing between the characters and the, the political maneuvering they're doing against each other, even with the guys, the low level guys, um, a lot of the 48 laws of power, like pertain to this movie. Um, and trying to gain rank and 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 not be killed, uh, because there's I can't I can't think of all the rules on top of my head, but there's all these things like um, don't outshine your master. Um, uh, I can't remember what the law is called, but there's something about like acting inept to hide like you know your abilities. Uh, there's all these like techniques and and these characters it's like they've all been reading that book well some have been reading it better than others and 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 it's it's portrayed in, in all these different interactions oh that's interesting hmm. yeah i was thinking of uh roger because i'm watching the scene where he's like when kirk douglas is like oh i want you to be to lead the execution and he keeps he's like oh i've never done that before you know maybe you can find someone better than me and he's he usually portrays himself as a much more kind of, uh, not imposing, but, you know, kind of... You talking about Roger? Roger, yeah. So he's got... 
So you're saying he's coming at him more with his tail tucked between his legs? Exactly, yeah. Once at this moment, whereas before he's just like, I'm an officer, and and you're just a you're just a private. You know, whose word are they going to believe? Yeah, I was thinking of that scene. Kirk Douglas comes to him in the in the uh, the trenches, and Kirk Douglas is like, "Why haven't you got these men out? Like, we need to go right now. This is ridiculous." And afterwards, he's like, "It's it's unfair of you to say that to me, sir. I couldn't do it. It's impossible." Mm-hmm. He's like standing up for himself, but now he's got his he's even got like his hat down to like his crotch, and he's got his head down. Like, oh, you know, I don't know if I can do this. You know, maybe you can find someone better. I really don't want to take this role. So, so uh, you just saying all that stuff was making me think of. Uh, him acting this way but and again i feel like they do kind of set him up as someone who would continue to go up in the ranks this roger someone who has what it takes to be the uh upper echelon type as compared to someone like kirk douglas but i'm actually watching the uh execution scene right now how do you think that came across well three images of the different men i'm weirdly distracted by our boy um (laughs) because I was just so focused on him and thinking he's just being funny that it took me out of feeling the actual emotion of the execution. Um, mm. If I just want to be honest, so I didn't feel the gravitas of it because I was just kind of just focused on his silliness. Yeah, see, that's the danger. I feel a similar thing when I watch The Shining because uh, Stanley Kubrick just pushed Shelley Duvall so much that I feel like so many scenes that she's in are like comically shrill. I always get distracted by that. But but for me, this viewing at least, I was more focused on uh, Arnold, I think it is, the one who is uh, in his stretcher. And whenever I see the image of them just like trying to prop him up and pinch his cheeks, I think that's a great little illustration of the absurdity of this, this poor... <laughs> like this man's not even, he's not even aware of what's going on really, but he's still being used as an example. Mm, I, yeah. You're right. We're still going to execute him. Mm-hmm. So I always find that a really powerful uh, image. But, I didn't think about that. Well, but now I'm watching the uh, the scene with Kirk Douglas and um, the... Uh, oh, I wish I could remember these names. <laughs> I think it's just because they're French names that I don't really, haven't really heard much before, so they don't really stick in my right. brain. But whoever the more kindly uh, grandfather general is, he keeps being like... Yeah, he's the, he's the higher general. Yeah, the higher... Yeah, it's like, oh, you've done such a great job, you know, putting this together, playing this act of the caring kind of uh, colonel, act like you're pretending to care about your men. And you just see Kirk Douglas as the scene goes on, like, just becoming just, like, horrified by who he realizes he's in the room with, this man Mm -hmm. that he thought that he could respect. Mm -hmm. I think that's another really great moment to end the film on. Yes, I agree with that. Oh, but, uh, yeah, the only other note that I had was about that, that final scene. Where we see the uh, the woman who sings a song in the uh, the bar. Did you have much much thoughts on that that or or not too much? I'd have to see it again. Um, I'd have to. Uh, let, me, let me zoom there right now. Yeah, I remember on my first viewing, I felt kind of confused by the scene. I was like, I'm feeling like some emotional response to it. It feels like a really impactful scene, but I don't fully, I can't fully connect the dots. But I feel like on this feeling I got it a lot more. And what is that? So, like, you think you got the message now? Yeah. Maybe. Maybe something coming up. Enlighten me. Enlighten me. Enlighten me. Yeah, so we see there's this, you know, Kirk Douglas has been kind of put through this machine of realizing that even though 
he may consider himself like kind of a patriot, someone who's serving the greater good of their country in this this battle. And he's kind of realized that the people that are leading this battle are just these almost like inhuman monsters. They don't care anything about the people that are serving their goals. They don't really have any sort of humanity left to them. And so then we see his men and his men are all they're all drunk. They're partying. And they're like, oh, we caught this this German, uh, this woman, this kind of like, uh, like surf girl. And they're all like, oh, yeah, get her out here. Yeah, entertain us, strip. And they're acting on a more bestial element of humanity. Mm-hmm. And you see Kirk Douglas is again kind of disgusted. Maybe just overall, just like, what is, what is my role here? The men that I'm serving under are hideous. The men that I'm serving over are hideous. And then she comes out and she sings a song that they can kind of all share. They all know this song. I guess even other different countries, this has been a tradition that's been carried across the borders. And all the men are emotionally moved and they can kind of relate to this. Like, oh, this she may be our enemy in some way, but she's still the same as us. And they can all share kind of a kinship as like the lower order of people. And I, I love that Kirk Douglas, even though he's still, you know, a leader... So he doesn't go in the room and doesn't take part in it. He can kind of just stand off to the side and kind of recognize like, oh yeah, there's still, at least for these people, there's still a humanity to them. There's still some value in this, in my role. And he's just like, well, give him a couple more minutes and then it's off to the battle again. I think that's a great end. (laughs) So I think uh, you're, yeah, I think you're right on. I think you're spot on. I hadn't given it much thought, but listening to your breakdown, I think you're right on. And it actually reminds me of something I experience. Um, I've experienced a lot. I feel like in 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 my life, even in college, but even post college, in the quote unquote real world. Except where I usually see this in real life, um, um, I've always noticed two different kinds of divisions uh, of class or. Or kind of people, which is I've always noticed the difference between quote unquote white collar crowds and especially college educated white collar crowds versus largely not college educated blue collar crowds. And I've always felt like a person who passed who has passed back and forth between both worlds, and I've always felt like I've seen the contrast and. I, I heard a lot of it reflected in what you were just saying. And another place I see it has to do with politics. Um, mm. And it's the separation between, let's say, the people who have what we know as is like a, a blue state ideology versus red state ideology. Um, and I feel like I've, I float a lot between those two worlds as well. Um, and just from my own personal perspective, the way I see these things. Um, and this is just, you know, only based upon my own anecdotal experience. But generally, the way you talked about the brass, the upper brass, and and their parties and their conversations and the things that they care about um, for reputation and for saving face and all that kind of stuff, that I more have seen and associate in my mind with that white collar world I spoke of as well as Mm -hmm. what we think of as the blue state type of ideology. 
and then just the guys on the front lines in the trenches digging the ditches that aspect i see more reflected in in my blue collar experience and with the quote-unquote red staters and and i don't know it's just i'm not trying to make any kind of outright statement here but i'm just saying i have that's when i feel like that kirk douglas character like like i feel like i observe both and then just like like um while the uh the underclass, while it's not all perfect, to me there's something a little bit more. There's, and I'm applying this to the red staters and the blue collar people. There's, there's a little bit more realness. There's a little bit more. What I mean by that is, you're dealing with real everyday struggles of waking up in the trench, of knowing you're going to have to go over the the top lip of the trench at some point potentially get killed no one will know no one else will really know you're suffering other than those who are um living in the same strata as you um i don't know whereas with the other group it gets more philosophical it's more about arguing about ideas um but not real things that you can actually see and touch physically um Mm -hmm. but i don't know i that's like a that's something for our psychology podcast uh whenever (laughs) we get that on out on the ground but that's my short version because i could we could do a whole podcast series on me just expounding upon all that stuff and you talking it's making me think of just i mean the entire idea of a military is just about power structure and how you kind of use power the upper class there they use power to control these people underneath them what they do is kind of uh, direct violence but they don't in- by them their own selves kind of do the violence mm-hmm. and so you see that scene where all the men were kind of like cheering on for that woman to strip but they're still low enough on the power that they're still connected to humanity in some way even though they're kind of these tools being yes. directed around to kill yes so i think that was a really good kind of differential between the two groups but again there's there's still a lot about this movie that i feel like i'll get more on on repeat viewings but most definitely definitely a lot more to it than i thought my first uh first viewing a few years back yep i agree i agree i'm totally in that same camp with this movie and yeah that's the amazing beauty of uh kubrick and his movies that's what it's all about I think I'm. I've gone through all my notes. So if you're, if you're ready for the old final thoughts, we can. Uh, oh, actually, there's actually two more things I forgot to mention. Go for it. So one, we get a few returning returning names on this one. We get uh, Gerald Freed back on the music, and also getting Jim Thompson back for for dialogue stuff from The Killing. And I was so impressed by his dialogue work in that previous movie. I'm glad to see that uh, Kubrick utilized him again. But I also realized that we forgot to mention. <laughs> That that fucking shitty general actually tried to bomb his old men because they wouldn't leave the trenches. Mm-hmm. I think that's quite a, <laughs> a pivotal moment. And that's ultimately his undoing, but super grotesque that you'd think that their cowardice, whereas you d- define as cowardice, sending them into this impossible battle. 
then you uh, just decide, oh, they're not they're not operating quite right. Just completely execute them. Use our own artillery. Just kill our own men. That's just complete perversion now, of the. Uh, one wonders what a modern day Kubrick could do now. I don't want to get into it, but now you're making me think of the Russian Ukraine situation. And you're making me wonder, because it's hard to know what's going on with that situation right now. I mean, it's playing out in real time as we speak. Because mm. it's hard to know because there's so much propaganda on both sides of that yep. conflict. But if some of the propaganda is to be believed, you know, a lot of those Russian soldiers don't know what they're doing there. Yep. Uh, they don't want to be there. Um, they're getting killed a lot. I mean, both sides are, but... The Russians are losing a lot more than they thought they would, and they're having to find more people, you know, to to keep it going, keep the war going. The Russians, and who knows? Um, I'm sure there's been a fair amount of situations with um, with them quasi unintentionally killing their own as well uh, during the conflict. Uh, you know, I'm sure there's been quite a bit of people shooting on their own forces and i say quasi because i don't mean friendly fire per se what well, a fine line between friendly fire and oh we know they might be there but it's collateral damage type and i don't really know i mean i don't know what's going on in the war i don't know about all the different situations that have been happening but yeah. i'm sure if you're be able to read some of these guys diaries there's just horrible, horrible, th this type of human condition, like the human condition at its worst. Um, you could imagine what type of film someone might be able to make five years after this conflict has ended, the current conflict. Mm. Yeah, and just out of curiosity, I'm sure you don't get this, but when I was watching this movie, watching just the military structure, I kept thinking of the Catholic Church and just something about all this pomp and this weird order and tradition and just con use of control. I feel like there's a real strong correlation between the two kind of structures. I always find both kind of disturbing about the uh, removal of self, kind of turning you into an instrument more than a person. Something about those kind of organizations just, I find the whole element of it disturbing. But <laughs> I understand the purpose, but... Well, there is. There is, there is, there is. But again, this is more for our psychology podcast. Um, yeah. because because there are a lot of parallels and they're there for a reason and and it's not just about Catholics but any type of organized um, anything along you know, organized Christianity or Judaism or even um, Muslim like whether you read like the the Hebrew Bible or the Quran not that I'm an expert on the Quran but um, there's a reason why those texts, in a way, read like military field manuals. There, there's there's reasons why. There's reasons why to the tradition, the rank, the reputation, the the all of it. Yeah, there's there's a method to it, and yeah, there's no way we're gonna unpack it right now. But yeah, <laughs> you can't have, in my opinion, you, you can't have none, meaning no structure. Mm -hmm. But then, at the other hand, you you can't go the opposite, ex like oh, to extreme structure either. This is oh, this is so philosophical. But 
it's all about it's all about finding the happy medium in between. This is the whole order and chaos um, argument and the uh, masculine feminine argument. This is, this is, I mean, this is what everything is all about, but so you're right. You're a hundred percent right. We, it just, that's a whole other show to unpack all these elements. Yeah. And I do think there's a beautiful chaos to that assault scene when they're all going on their big attack. Yes. And I love the moment when he tries to bomb his old men and the kind of inferior officer uses the kind of system to fight against him. He's like, Hey, I can't do this unless I have it in writing. So you need to get someone to bring this over to me. And the the general can't really do much to him because, of course, that is kind of you know, accepted that he needs to do that. All he can really do is put him in a place where he's not going to have much effect. Yeah. Just kind of shove him off in a closet somewhere. So I think there's a, yeah, you're right. a good comment on it in that moment. You're right, but then it's funny you brought that up about how he said he can't do that unless you bring this thing to me. Because then it, it's, it sounds like you're talking about like the codes, the 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 nuclear codes and whatnot in Dr. Strangelove and all that business. Mm. That's interesting. Yes. <laughs> Cannot wait to get to that movie. But, <laughs> but uh, very much enjoyed uh, rewatching this and talking about it with you. Always enjoy chatting some Kubrick. Love going through this stuff. I'm going to have to rate this before we go. And I'm going to have to hear your rating. Oh, sure. Uh, and uh, I was going to say how many, um, how many uh, Zads out of five? That's Dax backwards. Um, that's a uh, reference to uh, the Robin is bearing gifts uh, episode that we did. Yeah, Walter Koenig came in and, and picked that for us. <laughs> yes. So um, how many Zads out of five would you give this movie? Ooh, that's tough. I'm, I'm somewhere in between a, a 4.5 and a 4. I'm not 100% sure. I feel like maybe my next viewing I'll, I'll be sure, but... <laughs> uh, I'm going with a... But may, maybe I lean four for now. Oh. Well, before I go and give mine, um, this segment not brought to us by Rotten Tomatoes, uh, with the... Uh, I'm sorry, not with the audience. With the critics, 96%, very strong, certified fresh. With the audience, 95%, very strong, very strong on both both sides of the aisle. Um, the little blurb says, Paths of Glory is a transcendentally humane war movie from Stanley Kubrick with impressive, protracted battle sequences and a knockout ending. Wow. Wow, that's, that's, <laughs> that is a weird... I don't get these Rotten Tomatoes blurbs. <laughs> Very strange. <laughs> Does not yeah. paint the picture of this movie at all. Transcendentally humane war movie. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> but yeah, it is. Yep. Um, I'm. I'm also giving it four. I'm giving it four. It's just. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. But is it for general audiences? Not that that matters. Uh, probably not. But if you're any type of film buff, then. By all means, this is for you. Yeah, I think it'd be extremely easy to watch this and just take away like, oh yeah, kind of an anti-war picture, great uh, kind of action sequence, some okay kind of trial sequences. I feel like that's how I came away the first time I watched it. Yep. Yeah, this repeat viewing, I can see a lot more going on under the surface. Yep, not the same. Same for me. 
Yeah, and just out of curiosity, this maybe this is outside of the podcast, but but um, I'm at uh, let me see my timestamp. I'm at one nineteen twenty seven. There's a guy in the group, like an old man, who's reacting to the singer. And I know I've seen this actor in multiple other things, but I could not find him on IMDb. I'm like, who the hell is that guy? So I don't know if you still have your... I'll see if he looks... I'm getting there right now. I don't know if I'll sure. recognize it. 119.27. Yeah, I've been trying to look for him because I know I know this this older guy. But Wait, he didn't show up at 119.27. Um, are timestamps different? Uh, I am watching my DVD. Yeah, it's like an old man with, like, white hair and a black beard. And he looks, like, shocked. Like, oh, like, what's going on? Wait, what is happening in the movie? Because at that part of the movie, it's the three, or the two generals and the colonel or captain talking to each other. That's why I'm not sure. Oh, what's what's your final timestamp on it? Maybe my disc is missing a scene or something. Mine's 123.54. No, mine goes to 120. Well... There's extra credits added to the Criterion, but mine comes out to 128.21. Oh, wow. That's a big difference. Wow. Hmm. Where are my old... Uh... Uh, so what scene was it? Like, was it, like where were they at? Uh, it was during the scene where the, the German uh, woman is singing to all the men. Okay. It's one of, he's one of the men who reacts, kind of like shocked. When she comes out? Uh, in, when she's singing and they start to recognize the tune. Okay. Let me get to that point in the movie. Okay, so I'm at 122.11, and I haven't got to that, but I'm getting close to that scene. Yeah, it is interesting watching Kirk Douglas's face, like, initially so disgusted by hearing them all in there. So you potentially have, like, three minutes of movie missing. I did watch it on YouTube initially earlier, because I wanted an HD copy, but but my uh, my thing expired by the time we did this this episode, so... I couldn't tell if he was in some other Kubrick stuff, and that's where I recognized him from more. So he's an old man with a black beard. Yeah, and white hair, and he has like a big shocked face. Oh, I see him. I don't recognize him. I mean, he he looks like he could be... Uh... <laughs> I don't even know the character's names from the monsters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was trying to place... He could be the Dracula, the vampire guy from the monsters. Oh, but thanks again for, for coming along with this one, and I think it's Spartacus next, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I'm curious to revisit that. I probably haven't seen that in probably like close to 10 years, so. Yeah. Uh, I did watch that often as a kid. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. When I saw Sean in person, uh, I had an extra copy, so I just gave him a Blu-ray copy of Spartacus. Um, huh. he, he's actually never seen it before. Um and oh. but he was like oh but he's like you know there's a criterion version and i was like no i didn't know that uh it's only on dvd though i believe um the criterion mm. version i gave him the good blu-ray version however the 4k version does exist now so i own that of course uh, oh i didn't realize wow i gotta oh, pick yeah. that up mm. oh yeah and supposedly oh, what's the other one coming out supposedly this year um, Killer's Kiss. Is that the one that's coming out on 4K? Yeah, I think it's coming out in June. Killer's Kiss or The Killers? Uh, I'm pretty sure it's Killer's Kiss. I think I saw a tweet of that yesterday. Sounds like an odd choice. Let me look it up. Yeah, I was like, oh, really? Hmm. Quickly take a look. 
Yep, Kino Lobor. Yep, June. Oh, yeah, Kino Lobor. She likes Kiss. Yeah, so that'll be interesting. Are there other ones? Okay, what else? There's got to be another one this year. Um, Kubrick. <laughs> oh, it, both are coming. The Killing and Killer's Kiss. Yeah, when I was a little kid, when I was a little kid, my parents had all these old classic movies on VHS. They had like a two uh, VHS tape version of Spartacus. And I yeah. watched that fucking thing all the time. Uh, that was I didn't even I had no connection to Stanley Kubrick at that time. It was just like a Ben Hur or something like that, just like an epic movie that I'd watch. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think I've ever actually seen it in my uh, Kubrick kind of fandom. I think I saw it when my parents bought the DVD, maybe in like twenty, maybe like two thousand eight, two thousand nine. So I guess over ten years, yeah, than when I saw it last. But. So that's interesting. I'm very curious to see how it holds up all these years later. Man, I just... I want Eyes Wide Shut in 4K. It's the it's the, it's the worst looking of like the Kubrick Blu-rays. Um, that's interesting. It's by far the worst looking. Um, it's, it's never had like a nice, solid, clean release. I want that one. But anyway. Yeah, I gotta try to watch that once or twice more before we get to it. Since I've only seen it once, I feel uh, ill-prepared to talk about oh, it. Oh, Lord, I've watched it many times. Many, many, many times. 